What, what kind of tasting was that? After? Soup. Soup tasting. So that part's for guys? No? Okay. Bummer. So, um, Lori, as she mentioned, will be out at the table in the atrium afterwards, and uh, other, there's other tables out there for you to learn about other ministries here at New Hope as well. Um, so you can visit with them after the service. If you're new here, I'm not going to ask you to start parking at the bowling alley, but if you're somebody who comes to the 11 o'clock service regularly, I'm going to ask you to consider, if you're physically able, the bowling alley next door has allowed us to use their parking lot on Sunday mornings, and so we're asking if that's a possibility so that our parking lot has more room, if you would help us out that way. Um, there was uh, two weeks ago, not Labor Day weekend, but two weeks ago, over a thousand people here, and the streets were packed with cars. Maybe you were here that weekend and you know. So in order to help out and that we don't get in trouble with the Meridian Police Department, we're just going to ask if you can help us that way. That would be great. All good stuff. God's really blessing, and we're seeing the growth and the fruit of that, but um, that would be a way you could assist us. Well, we're going to get into Genesis 20 and 21 in just a minute, uh, or 20, uh, 20 and 21 chapters in just a moment, but I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me before we step into this, that God would guide us and lead us through this passage. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what's before us and the opportunity to be shaped according to your purposes. Every one of us, whether we're at home right now or whether we're physically in the auditorium or in a place where we want to know more about you, and we want to know more about ourselves and how you view us and the things that you've called us to. As a result of what we're about to look at, God, I know that you will shape and where you shape and where you correct and where you guide, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be faithful to respond to that. So cause us as we look at your word, as you cause it to come alive now through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would see clearly what you're speaking to us about and how we might use that in the week ahead of us. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview of chapter 20 because what we're really driving at is chapter 21. And I'm going to encourage you, if you have an electronic copy of the Bible, maybe open it up on your phone right now, or perhaps you have a hard copy. If you rather hold a hard copy and you don't have one, there's some in the seats in front of you in the little racks. And if you're at home, by all means, get out your hard copy of your Bible. There's something about holding God's Word in your hand and, and being able to look at it yourself. Yes, all the verses will be on the screen, but there's something about personally being able to make notes and remind yourself of what God's showing you. So in our E2E study, if you're new here, the E2E stands for Eternity to Eternity. We started the book of Genesis in October of 2021. So we're almost one year into it, and I know we're still in the book of Genesis, and, and if you're a mathematician, you know that there's 66 books in the Bible, and it's taken us the whole year to do this book. You're probably thinking it's going to be 66 years, which I'd be totally cool with. That'd be okay with me, uh, that God would give me 66 more years. I'd, I'd love that. But it, there's something specific about our journey so far. During this time, we've navigated through some amazing faith stories of ancient history, and we've been able to see God's Word come alive, none the least of which has been Abraham these last few weeks and his particular journey. And in the next two weeks, we're going to see him step off the pages of the Bible. But when we first saw him appear, and it was over the midst of the summer, during that time, probably around June, he burst on the pages of Genesis larger than life. We had this patriarch of the faith 
This individual who's saturated in huge faith actions. And he's leaving his home and boldly going where no man has gone before, if you will. He's an adventurer and he's taking on challenges that God brings before him. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger when we see someone as just this adventurous Bible hero. They become unrelatable to us as though we could never measure up to the stature of a person like that. After all, who among us has ever packed up their entire family and moved hundreds of miles on foot, forging new territories? Who among us has ever negotiated with Pharaoh? Who of us ever stood and watched the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Who among us have rescued prisoners of war from kings of the ancient days? Who among us have ever talked directly to God face-to-face? That's Abraham. And all of that can cause us to forget. Most of his daily life was routine. He cared for a pregnant wife. He managed the affairs of his business. And by this point in time, Abraham Incorporated is huge. But yet he still has to dig wells and he has to shear the sheep and he has to provide grazing for his cattle and he has to settle the daily disputes of his employees and yeah, he has to deal with the trauma of shattered human relationships, some of which he caused. In other words, he deals with the normality of life very daily in a broken world. That makes him relatable. Well, throughout our journey, we've been reminded of one of the most unique things that you find in the Bible is the Bible doesn't try to hide the fact that humans fail. Specifically, the followers of God fail. The Bible, whether you're not familiar with it, whether you're familiar with it or not, the Bible actually tells the truth about people, including God's people. And it doesn't hide the fact that people like Noah got drunk, or Moses seemed to constantly lose his temper. It doesn't hide the fact that David committed adultery and murder on top of that, or that Peter actually denied even knowing Jesus. God doesn't try and whitewash over the characters of the Bible. He lets them be real. Well, in this first section in chapter 21, we're gonna, or 20, we're going to quickly look at that issue today. It falls into that vein, and it's in this passage that you come to that you would almost say, I kind of wish that one wasn't included in the Bible. It's actually kind of embarrassing. Go with me to chapter 20, verse 1. Now, Abraham journeyed from there, and there means he's been at Sodom and Gomorrah watching what happened, from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, the last time we saw Abraham, two weeks ago, he's looking out over the valley of where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be, and it's been torched. There's just this pillar of smoke going up, like the furnace of an oven. That's what the way Scripture described it, just like a pillar of smoke ascending up to the heavens. So after living more than 20 years at Mamre, he's now going to relocate 100 miles to the southeast. And we're not actually even told why. Maybe it's the shock of what he saw, or just dealing with the reality of how many families were destroyed in that moment. 
but his new location is going to be near the border of Egypt, 30 miles from Abimelech's palace at this town called Gerar. Uh, Abimelech, just so you know, is not a name of a person. It's actually a title. Like the Egyptians would call their kings Pharaoh, the Philistines would call their leaders or their kings Abimelechs. So there's like four or five different Abimelechs when you come through the Old Testament. This is one of them. It's not a personal name. So because he's so near the border of Egypt and so much in the land of the Philistines, the royal guard is dispatched to go out and check out this guy who's a very wealthy stranger, and they want to know more about him. But because Abraham fears for his life, he tells the palace reps, Sarah's my wife, or Sarah's my, my sister. So Abraham, we discover, is packing a half-truth with him. And he's been carrying this around like a get-out-of-jail-free card since he left the Ur of the Chaldees. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Ur of the Chaldees is southern Iran. He moved from there because God told him to, but he carries this little excuse with him when he goes into foreign countries. It's very convenient, but Abraham believes because it's a half-truth, it's his safety net. Because half-truths are not supposed to be quite as bad as real outright lies. Well, here's just an observation for you out of the gate. If you find yourself scheming to escape problems, you better be careful because trouble is likely coming. Just set that aside for a moment. If you've been following this story right along, you might be going at this point, wait, time out. What in the world is a wealthy king doing taking a 90-year-old woman into his harem? Look, what is he thinking? Why would Abimelech do that? Well, know this, first of all, politics plays into it. She's a member of a very, very wealthy family, extremely wealthy. And for a political argument, it would say, this is a nice addition to Abimelech's kingdom, to have that person part of his palace. But she's 90. Why would he bring her in? Well, you might recall back when we were in chapter 12 that I told you that a lot of extra-biblical scholars who looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah, even though we were told in chapter 12 she was 65 then, she looked like she was around 28 years of age. Well, this is not that many years later, and she apparently ages very, very slowly. She's still really, really beautiful. I'm just speculating, but she's looking like maybe she's in her 30s even though she's going to live to be 130. Well, we don't know that for sure, but that's not the biggest issue. There's bigger details going on here. After arriving in Gerar, Abraham seems like he's beginning to walk by sight and not by faith. When you get to verse 11, he's going to come across this guy who's really afraid for his life. It appears that he's setting aside his knowledge of the God that he follows as God Almighty. We just saw that two chapters ago. Abraham walked before me. I'm God Almighty. But he seems to set that aside. Now, because of this deceit, God has to intervene. Verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, Will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and, I will pr- and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. In the Hebrew language, the word prophet, um, in this case, is the word nabi, and it actually means someone who speaks on behalf of another. There's that component of it. God's saying, Abraham is going to speak on your behalf to me if you do what I ask you to do. But there's also this component that he's received direct revelation from God. That qualifies him alone as a prophet. That's an interesting detail. And then we find Abimelech saying, are you going to slay a nation? Now, he's actually talking about something bigger than that phrase. We'll come back to that in just a second. What you find this first passage doing is it's going to great length to demonstrate that Abimelech only had partial information. He wasn't fully informed. And God knows he has partial information. But God doesn't excuse him because he has partial information. Rather, what God does is he hears the genuine plea. And once again, you and I are reminded of the compassion of God. He's actually giving him time to respond. He's saying, yep, I understand. You had partial information. You need to respond based on the information you have now. What are you going to do with that? Do the right thing, Abimelech. So after a really rough night of sleep, he gets up early the next morning, and we find verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Just step out of the biblical verse for a moment and, and consider this. Real humans talking to real humans. How humiliated is Abraham in this moment? the pagan confronting the patriarch and rebuking him. How humiliated is this man of faith? You can be sure these words cut really, really deep. Now, I think he's confronting him publicly from the way I read this passage. But know this, there's this surface of deception in Abraham's life that keeps popping up again. It's just under the surface, and it surfaces its ugly head. And you find it transferring over to his grandson, Jacob, who's actually called the deceiver. This is a theme in his life. It repeats constantly. So Abraham goes into explanation mode to try and justify his actions. Verse 11, Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear. And the word that's used here in Hebrew is yare. And yare is talking about the awe of God. There's no awe of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. There's the fear coming out. Not believing God Almighty would protect him. So he keeps going. Besides, she actually is my sister. The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham is determined to justify his actions by excusing himself that there's nobody in this generation, in this society, in this region among the Philistines 
who actually has any regard for God, as though that justifies the lie. There's no one here with any moral integrity. Why I point that out is this is really important, even though God himself, even though God has told Abraham of his future, that you've got a destiny, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He's still exhibiting doubt. Now, for a pagan, according to Abraham's words, for a pagan who has no regard for God, Abimelech becomes pretty magnanimous at this point. He accepts the explanation. And he begins to fault himself, and then he opens up the checkbook of the kingdom. Go with me to verse 14. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand. It's interesting. He's not calling him his husband, the husband of Sarah. Your brother. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men, you are cleared. And then Abraham does do what God called him to do and goes into prophetic mode. Watch, verse 17. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So when he said, will you slay a nation? Will you kill off an entire people? He's talking about the fact that God had revealed to him, you're not going to have any offspring. So apparently this took, court, took, took place over the course of a period of time. So here we're discovering the nature of God's warning to Abimelech. That ends chapter 20. And it took us like 10 minutes to go through that. Now, if we could do every chapter in Genesis that way, we probably could get done in like two years, right? But I use that to set up the reality of chapter 21, and you're going to see why these are so intricately woven together. And before we go into that, we need to ask this question. Why, how did Abraham, the patriarch, after all that he's been through, after all that God has revealed to him, why did he fail here again? And this becomes really instructive for you and I. Abraham's sin nature, his humanness that we all have, his sin nature got the better of him. Now, clearly, this is a guy who's been justified by faith. Genesis 15, 6, God counted it unto him as righteousness. All of the New Testament speaks about Abraham's relationship with God. God gave him a new destiny. He gave him a new name. But, and this is where you and I can identify with him, not as the hero, but as the human. His flesh is still at war within him. It only takes a few seconds for Abraham to weave his lie. But you and I know that a lie is more than mere words. It's not just puffs of breath coming out of our mouth. It's actually a reflection of the heart. It reveals what we believe. Abraham believes in that moment that he needs to manipulate the circumstances, that he needs to maneuver through the situation in order to control the outcome. And as humans, we have to acknowledge it's in these moments that we stop asking, what's the right thing to do? 
and we begin asking, what's the safe thing? How do I protect myself? Which leads directly to failure. So let's ask the question, well, what did this cost Abraham? It cost him his character. In the eyes of the people he just met in the new kingdom, his neighbors, in the eyes of his employees, in the eyes of his own household, there's a chink in his armor. People are going to look at him differently now. He's moved from confidence to fear. This is the same guy who has spoken to God, who's negotiated with Pharaoh, who's rescued prisoners of war, who stood at Sodom and Gomorrah. This is that exact same guy who's now hiding behind his wife's skirt. How? Because his eyes are off the power of God and it's focused on the power of men. And there's this big thing. Abraham nearly lost Isaac and Sarah. See, in that day, a king had the right to take any woman he wanted if she was single. And Abimelech looks out over his kingdom and he sees beautiful Sarah and he determines that she must be single. So he takes her. What would that have done to God's plans? See, were it not for the intervention of God, the king, Abimelech, would have forever changed the course of history as you and I know it. Even if Sarah was pregnant in that moment but wasn't showing yet, that child, Isaac, would have been raised in Abimelech's household. So God had to intervene. Now, I'm sure there's some who are thinking right now, Mark, you're being pretty hard on Abraham. Notice, please, first of all, I'm not trying to tear him down to build myself up. I'm, I'm relating to him like we all do as a human. And also recognizing that scriptures say these things were written as an example for you and I. So that we would remember that God is not just saving souls and taking people to heaven. He's making saved people more like Jesus. So that we would be a reflection of his character during our time on this planet. See, in our daily lives, it is God's desire, just as it was in Abraham's life, that we would model what it looks like to belong to God to a world that's completely lost, that we would model righteousness in our life. That's why you find just a couple chapters before this, God saying to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be perfect. Not that we can achieve perfection in our life, but that we would strive toward that. So here is where Genesis 20 shifts seamlessly into chapter 21. They are intimately linked. It's 1880 B.C., and Abraham finds himself in the Negev. This region called the Gerar, the, the terrain is very flat. It's very dry ground. But even with limited rainfall in the Negev, it produces citrus crops then and now. It produces lots of green onions, it produces cabbage, it produces celery and lettuce and cotton, sunflowers. It's a very fertile area. And the reason for that is there's this area of irrigation just 20 feet below the surface. Geologists have discovered that there's a large layer of clay 20 feet below the surface, and the ancients knew that, and they only had to dig shallow wells, and they know it today, and so they continue to irrigate there today. In other words, it's a nice place to raise a family. 
So Abraham has abundant crops. He's got his livestock herd that is growing exponentially and increasing every day. And money is just flying into his bank account. And now he's not only enjoying God's prosperity, they're going to be given the promised child, the one upon whom he would place the entire inheritance of his family wealth and the one through whom Jesus would be born one day. Verse 17, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which if you know the Bible, you know means laughter. The, the name Isaac is the word for laughter in their language. And they choose to name him the very name laughter. So this miracle child has to be the hot topic of conversation among everyone, anywhere. I'm sure if Twitter was alive and well at that time, it would have gone global by that point. Everyone would know, what in the world? A 90-year-old woman gave birth to a child from a 100-year-old dad? And on top of that, they had waited 25 years for that child from the time of the promise of God to the birth of the child. 25 years. I have a hard time waiting a week for something. 25 years. God waits all that time. All those days have clicked off, waiting until human capacity is completely eliminated so that no one can challenge what God has done. Can I just say right now that God, you serve a God who keeps his promises. God keeps his promises in his own way, in his own timing, but he is true to his word. So in spite of the failures, in spite of Abraham and Sarah falling short, they still believed God, and God honored their faith. Now, at first glance, when you read that in, in verse 1, 2, and 3, you, you might look at that and say, looks like the birth of Isaac is treated kind of anticlimactically. Like, where's the fanfare? Uh, I'm going to ask the tech room if they put that verse back on the screen again. I just want you to drink in and look very closely, examine what's being related here, because I know, and we believe that Moses is the author of Genesis, I know that there's a reason behind the authors writing it this way. Look at what he says. The birth has come about... As God had said, God has done according to His plans. When you examine it, you'll find three times within those first two verses, it's stressing it happened exactly as God had announced that it would happen. See, what Genesis 21 verses 1, 2, and 3 actually do is it's driving you towards God's faithfulness, towards God's commitment to keep His word. So just a rabbit trail, if you'll allow it. I thought this was a really good place to plug in Isaiah 44. I bet it's been a long time since many of us have read that, but let me show you what God says about himself. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. In other words, there's not a pantheon of gods out there. Keep going. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. That's kind of like God saying, okay, bring it. 
You think you got something? Bring it. Recount it to me. Tell me how you're like me. He goes on in verse 8, is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? All of this serves loudly to remind us. Other people will let you down. Other people in your life may even break their word or disappoint you or even betray you. But not our God. His word is a rock, and you can depend upon it. He is as solid as the foundation of this earth. Verse 4, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. That's a very cool expression. And I want to really drive this point home because it plays such a heavy role in the story as it unfolds. The reason I referred all the way back to October of last year when we started the Genesis study and I kept dropping hints along the way about how many weeks it takes to get here, it has taken you and I multiple weeks to get to this point. Finally, we're here. But it took them 25 years, 25 years waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. And during all this time and long before, Sarah and Abraham have been wearing this burden of childlessness in their life. And it's an especially heavy weight in the generation that they live in. And I'm sure people smiled very politely when they heard Abraham's name, which in their language meant father of a multitude. Like, father of a multitude? Are you kidding me? He's the father of one, and that's not even by Sarah. It's by his handmaiden, Hagar. Father of a multitude, but they would never say that to his face. But now, in the story, they legitimately are rejoicing in the arrival of this promised child. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has done something amazing in their life. And this is where I want to link for you, not as a rabbit trail, what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, because it directly relates to where you're at today. So I don't want to make you do a yo-yo thing and have to flip through the pages of your Bible, but I'm going to put the verses on the screen. But here's what's going on in Galatians. In Galatians in the New Testament, Isaac is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that which is born of the Spirit. But Ishmael, he's a picture of the things that you do the works of the flesh on your own, the things that you try to concoct and scheme with. Watch how Paul states this in chapter 4 of Galatians. Verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael. And the son by the free woman, that's Isaac, through the promise, meaning the work of the Spirit, and Paul goes on to say, this is allegorically speaking. So check this. Paul's writing that Isaac is the work, the result of a life surrendered to the Spirit of God when someone's walking in obedience and walking in faith. But Ishmael, Ishmael stands for the works of the flesh. And that imagery plays powerfully into the direction of the story as it peels back the layers. Dive back with me into Genesis, now verse 8. Verse 8. 
The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. Now, typically, Jewish children were weaned between the ages of three and five from nursing with their mother, but most of them around the age three, like 90% plus, and the, the weaning day was actually treated higher than the birthday, and they would put together a huge celebration on account of that weaning day, and that's what's going on. There's this big festival, and then comes verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. In the New Testament, this word that's used here is dialko, and, and it actually is in Galatians, and it's talking about something more than just mocking. Verse 10, we'll come back to that in a second. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. This is the same woman who just a few chapters ago had given her maid to Abraham to sleep with her in order to produce a child and said, perhaps by her I'll receive a son. Well, now she's changed her tune. Now here, if you happen to have the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV is not helpful in this particular verse because it actually translates it as laughing. Let me put this on the screen. I'm, I'm not diminishing the ESV. It's a great translation, but read it. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. The problem is it doesn't expand on what kind of laughing is going on. And we know there's multiple forms of laughter, and it really reflects what's going on in the emotion of a person's heart. So Paul has to help us out substantially, and he amplifies what's going on here. Go back to Galatians 4 again, verse 28. You, brethren, you knew hope. You a believer in Jesus Christ this morning? You knew hope. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. And this is that Greek word that translated into the Hebrew was mocking, dioko. And look very closely at it. It's so important to what's going on here. This is describing not just pursuing, not just persecuting, but kicking, knocking down taking over and being a schoolyard bully. Here's the background. Ishmael, at this point in the story, is 17 years old. Isaac's three. Sarah's looking across the courtyard and sees a 17-year-old beating up on her three-year-old and says, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I don't want this contention in my household. You've got to drive her out. Get this out of our life. So you have a 17-year-old shoving and bullying and tormenting a little boy of three. What did God say would happen with Ishmael's personality? That he would become a wild donkey of a man. And that his offspring would be constantly at war with others. This is what we're watching being fleshed out here. The flesh and the spirit are in conflict, Paul says in Galatians, in exactly the same way. You've got the one born of the spirit and you've got the one born of the flesh, and there's a war going on internally. See, you and I want to do the things that God has called us to. We start out each week with a brand new blank slate. Today I'm going to begin doing whatever. I'm not going to do what I used to do anymore. 
And then the flesh, flesh comes along and it starts kicking and bullying and pushing back against us and constantly tripping us up. Then comes the next part. It says in Genesis 21, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. And you have to be very careful how you read that. To say that this situation is grievous to the maximum for Abraham is a huge understatement. So how do I read that? Is is he grieved over how his 17-year-old son is treating his three-year-old? Is he grieved that Sarah has told him he's got to send Ishmael out? Is he grieved that his three-year-old has just been beat up on? The specific word that's used here, it's the last word we'll look at this morning from the Hebrew language. The word is ra'ah, and it's in your notes also. But I want you to also pay very careful attention to this. When it it says to spoil, and literally by breaking in pieces, just picture this. Let's say there's a boulder up here on the platform, and I have a sledgehammer in my hand, and I can drive that sledgehammer down. Each time it hits the rock, it shatters it. That's the image behind ra'ah, literally. But when it's used figuratively, it's talking about something that's happening internally. Somebody who's being broken into pieces. And Moses goes on to write, times greatly... This is happening in Abraham's life. So it's not used lightly in the Bible because the word distressing actually means to shake violently. So let's say you came to church this morning and at your home you left a window open and you've got curtains or you've got blinds or you've got drapes and there's a storm coming. And if the wind rips through, it's going to begin violently shaking those drapes. Some of you are wondering right now if you left a window open, aren't you? (laughs) Picture that imagery in your mind. It's violently shaking, and that's the word that's used to describe what Abraham is feeling here. He's like a curtain being blown in the wind, and he is deeply moved. So to say his emotions are extremely raw would be absolutely accurate. So question. In that context, could Ishmael and Isaac continue to live together? Well, yeah, they could. But the contention would be huge. There would be constant conflict. What's unfolding here, as Paul writes in Galatians 4, is helping us to understand in our walk with Jesus the difference between trying to walk in the law and to walk in the grace of one who's born in the Spirit versus one who's trying to do it themselves. Now, keep in mind, all of these things you're watching unfold are the result of delayed consequence. Ishmael is 17, and Abraham has known for a very long time that Ishmael is not God's choice. For a very long time he's known that he will not be the heir. Yet Abraham has permitted him to stay in his life even though he's abrasive to the people around him. And he's a man at this point. So God has to step in. Next verse. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Ishmael's going to stay until God steps in and gives clear direction. And the longer he stays, the longer there's a huge bone of contention between Abraham and Sarah. 
Now, if Isaac represents the work of the Spirit in your life as a believer, and Ishmael represents our self-life, that which we hold to ourselves as precious to us, it's mine, it's what I've done, we especially don't want to surrender that. Those things of our own making, some precious item to us, or perhaps some hurt, or some habit that we cling to, which we know that God doesn't want us to have, but he wants us to surrender it and to give it up so that it's not contaminating our life. Perhaps you have a long-standing habit this morning. Or maybe you have a huge heartache or some hurt that you've kept and you've been defending that feeling and you're keeping it around like a pet. And I don't mean to be humorous in this moment, but like pet Ishmael. Something that's so much a part of your life that habit, that hurt, that is in reality a form of self-indulgence, what that does is it takes up room in your life and it begins beating everything else around it like a schoolyard bully. And it kicks and it shoves and it pushes and it forces its own way. And you would call that an Ishmael in your life. And while God may continue to allow those things for a short while, eventually he says, you've got to let that go. Now. Because I can't move you on to the next stage until you do. You have to let that go. So that's why I say, do you have an Ishmael in your life this morning? To, to wrap this up, Hagar is going to have to ensure that there's going to be no further compromise. And so she sent out, completely sent out, taking Ishmael with her. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. We'll pick it up there next week, but just stay with me on this. Think human to human. How hard was that? How hard is that for Abraham? This is a boy he's raised. He's 17 years old. 17 years in his life. And the Bible says it's distressing off the charts. But it's God's command. It's not easy. But he has to obey in order to do what God has called him to do. And Abraham does obey, even though it's causing him ra'ah. He's being shattered to pieces. He sends Ishmael out. Just as a point of interest, if you're a student of the Bible, this is the dividing point of the nation of Israel and the Arabic nation. The line of the Arabic people come from Ishmael. The line of the Jews come from Isaac. And this is the point at which they separate because they can't get along. Just a detail, bigger issue. When we come to these type of decisions in our life and the Spirit of God convicts us about an issue, 
At first, I'm just being honest here. At first, it feels as though God is so severe. How dare you ask me to do that? It's so demanding. And yet in reality, God's been patient all along. He's been gentle all along. He's been prodding all along. He's been tender. And he comes to Abraham and says, man, you've got to let that go. More often than not, when God asks us to do those kind of things, things that seem to make no sense in the moment, it's in that very moment when we hit what's called the crisis of belief. And the crisis of belief is, do I believe that God has my best interest at heart? Am I really believing God that he can cause all things to work together for good? That belief, that confidence that God is calling you on to the next stage, a bigger step, bigger than yourself, certainly bigger than Abraham, before he can do that and before he will do that and move you on to the next thing, it requires, it demands that we surrender up that very thing that we're holding as precious in our life. Even if it's a hurt. And the reason for that is so that he's free to shape us and mold us and make us into what he really sees that we can be. So to bring closure to the story for you, understand that God says emphatically, Ishmael will never be the one who gets the inheritance. Isaac will. But God does not abandon Hagar and Ishmael. He says, I'm going to make him into a great nation. So by, before sending him out, he reaffirms his promise and he does make Ishmael into a great nation and the Arabic nation is a force to be reckoned with today. That's just an aside. That's just a reminder that God does keep his word. So you leave here this morning and you go out to take on a society who even questions whether or not God actually exists. And God has called you to be his representatives in this world so that people would see what righteousness looks like. Because you follow a God who always keeps his promises. God always keeps his word. No matter how long you may have to wait, no matter how hard it is, you can trust God. He is true to his word. Amen, New Hope? Amen. On that, let's pray. Father, there's a, admittedly a great assembly of people here. Each of these individuals you see as a warrior Many times we don't feel like a warrior. We feel like we fall short. Remind us of who we are in you, that we are who you declare us to be, and we have the privilege of representing you on this planet. So like Abraham, Father, as we walk forward in this week taking on daily responsibilities, we would ask that you would allow us and help us to make choices that reflect well of who we are before you and where we need to let something go, God. I ask that you would point that out to us and that we would be bold enough to do that so that you can move us on. I pray for that in the majestic name of Jesus, our soon coming King, and all God's people said, amen, amen.
If you happen to be in the age group of the greenhouse, uh, the collegiate group, or the young professionals this morning, they're having lunch in the quad after this service. So if you're looking for a free lunch, join them, okay? But you got to be young enough, all right? Okay. And if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. I'll be down here in the front. Have a great week, New Hope.